Well, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church, and we are in week two of a four-week series called How Jesus Made Disciples. We're going through the first two chapters of the book of John as Jesus calls and brings the 12 kind of around him. And our job, rumor has it, when we read scripture, is as a follower of Jesus, it is to be and to make, what's the word? Dis- disciples. This is, this is like Part of what it means to follow Jesus, we are his disciple, and our job is to make disciples as well. So to set this message up, let me ask you a pretty loaded question. What is the job description of a parent? (laughs) Some of you are like, please tell. Oh, I will. Don't worry. I've thought about this for a while. It's never perfect. It keeps shifting and editing, but here's what I've got. Here's what I got so far. Distilled it down. I I think this is good enough for today. To prepare and release each child into God's calling for their future. And and so every child that we have, they're on loan for us for a certain period of time. And our job is to figure out, God, who did you make this person to be? And, And how can I prepare them for the world? And then inevitably we release them and send them off and cross our fingers and pray to God every single day, hoping they're going to be okay. Amen to every person who's ever been a mother or father here, right? I want to focus on the word release. So before your child moves out of the house, there are significant moments of letting go before you get to kind of the ultimate moment of letting go. And so um, there's the first time that you send your kid to youth group. Uh, I remember being in seventh grade and I went to youth group for the first time and I was super nervous, but I saw my brothers go through it and I could not wait to be a part of it. And, and God used that experience to literally transform my entire life as a young kid. I remember my first mission trip and my parents were so nervous. Uh, we went to Mexico and when your kid is in ninth or 10th grade and they're going out of the country with a bunch of youth leader goons, at least that's how I think they often get perceived. They're not, they're actually very awesome people who led our trip, right? But my mother was like, uh, I want control. Now I'm the youngest of four. So she was getting used to letting go by the time she got to me, right? But it's never easy to send your child across the world to a country where you're not there to protect them and control all the environment around them. Then, then they enter high school, and you think to yourself, oh no, I've got four years until they are a legal adult, or they're going to move out of the house or something, or college, oh my gosh, and the parents start to kind of have this freak out moment then. I think one of the most vulnerable moments is when they get a driver's license, For some of you, you should rightly be concerned about your child being behind the wheel, but for most, it's not your child that you're worried about. It's all the other crazy people, right? It's all the people who drive with their brights on at night, and you're like, I can't see. Stop doing that. Or the ones who drive cars with LED lights, right? Stop it. That's not good. I know some of you can't control that. There's usually a moment of finality for parents, though, of letting go, and it's when they move out. Sometimes it's when they go to college or when they get married. And marriage is one of the most emotional because their loyalty, your kid's loyalty, their ultimate loyalty is moving from you and their siblings to some functional child who didn't pay hundreds of thousands of dollars and sacrifice their body and their social life and their anxious nights of sleep and prayer and a million other things. And you have to like now give them away and all of their loyalty. Now they're creating a new family and it shifts from you to them. I mean, that, that, is, that is an emotional moment of letting go. 
Now, I want you to keep this in your mind. I want you to open your Bibles with me into the book of John, chapter two. We're gonna start in verse one. And I, I gotta set up some context because there's a lot going on here in the book of John. Jesus has new disciples and they are getting to know him. They are trying to figure out who he really actually is. Jesus is getting ready to go public with his identity. He, he's kind of getting ready to let people know, yes, I'm fully man, but FYI, I might also be fully God as well. He's going to go public with this soon, which means he's also getting ready to leave his home and he's getting ready to leave his single mother. Even more importantly, and this is a part of the context you need to get in your brain if you're going to understand John chapter 2. The moment Jesus begins his public ministry, both he and his mother know it will only end one way, and that is with his murder. So do you think this mother is chomping at the bit to release and let her son go? All the moms in the room said, no. There's a unique thread in the book of John, and the thread is, describes regularly Jesus' affectionate love and compassion for his mother. Um, all the way at the very end of the book of John, Jesus is dying, and here's what happens. We need to listen to this. This is from John chapter 19. It says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. There are a lot of Marys, apparently. When Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved, by the way, whenever you see that in the book of John, it's actually John who wrote John. This is how he self-identifies, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I love that. So when Jesus saw his mother and John standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, to John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her, Mary, into, into his own home. And this most desperate moment of this single mother's life, even as Jesus is dying, he takes this moment of love and compassion to make sure that she is cared for for the rest of her life. So in light of this, I want you to look at John chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Uh, if you want to know from Nazareth, where Jesus probably lived, to Cana and Galilee, here's the distance. It's about the distance from Village Church to Starbucks in Streamwood. If you are a terrible human, it's the distance from Village Church to Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and if you are vile, it is the distance from Village Church to Taco Bell in Streamwood. Just kidding, I love Taco Bell. <laughs> if you're a mother, it's the distance from Village Church to Target in Streamwood. <laughs> and so this is close. This is really close. And it says this, the mother of Jesus was there. Verse two, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And then verse three, this is like the last thing you ever want to hear about a wedding. When the wine ran out... Let's pause. What do we know so far? Here's what we know. The wedding is that of either, either a family member or a, a very close family friend. Uh, we also know that the party, it is not close to being 
over. Um, the wine has run out, but here's what we know. The people want more. Weddings lasted not just a day like they do here. They lasted usually up to a week. Here's what we also know. Either the host did not plan well or they were poor. Um, Either way, we also know that the host family, the bridegroom's family, is about to be utterly shamed publicly in front of their friends and their family. Uh, the last thing we know is that Mary is watching these events very closely, and she is keenly aware that something bad is about to happen. And so here's, here's what she does in this moment. She has this understanding that either this family is going to be shamed or the only person who can fix this is her son. And, and here's, what, here's what happens. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, her name is Mary, go figure, they're all Mary. If it's a woman, it's named Mary. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, there's a lot of ways to interpret this. It could be, oh, did you know? They have no wine. Huh, interesting. We should go home. That's not her tone. Her tone is like a mother who says something to you but doesn't say it, but you know exactly what she means. They have no wine. <clears throat> now, here's my question. What crazy stuff must Jesus have done before this moment to give that woman the confidence that when there is no wine, this Jesus can make a lot of wine really quick out of nothing? Let, let me translate what, what Mary is saying to him. Jesus, these are our people. I know you can fix this. And so for Mary, this, this honestly, this might be just about meeting a need. We've got family, we've got friends, we love them. Social shame is about to happen. This is one of the worst things that could happen here. You have the ability to fix this. I've seen you do this before. I've been, I've been to your parties, so do it again, right? Who knows? Verse four, Jesus says to her, woman, you need to understand this. This is not derogatory. Like we're conditioned to read this as derogatory. So gentlemen, don't call your wife or another woman, woman, be like, I'm acting like Jesus, not what it meant. So be, be a good boy and don't say that. But in this culture, this is not snarky. It's actually a respectful method of communication. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, I got I to draw your attention to these two words, my hour. Because in the book of John, I, I cannot think of a single exception. It always refers to the death of Jesus. Let me translate the whole conversation. Mary says to Jesus, Jesus, these are our people. I know you can fix this. Mom, think about this. If I do this, then I go public. And you and I both know how this ends. Are you ready to lose me? Because that's what's going to happen. John 2 reads so quick. Craig and Alex and I and, and, and Dean, we were studying this. And there was just a moment where Craig was just sitting there. And he's got tears going down his eyes. And he's just thinking like, this is such a tender moment between a mother and a son and it's unfortunate because we're 2,000 years removed from some of the vocabulary. It's like, woman, are you, you know, like, get past all that. Are you ready 
for what's going to happen if I do this. So if you're his single mother, what would you say in this moment? I mean, there, there are significant moments of release every parent has to face when God asks you to let go despite all the possible consequences, but this is different. The, the consequences are not here possible pain, but certain and excruciating heartache. I want to go back in time with you, and I want you to understand this event through the lens of Mary. And we're going to go back to the first months of Jesus's life. And it's in the book of Luke in chapter two, verses 34 and 35. And, and the, there's a period of purification after the birth of Jesus. Mary has to go through under, under law. And they're in Jerusalem and a prophet named Simeon comes up to them and has some really challenging words. Here's what Simeon says. Simeon blessed them And said to Mary, his mother, we don't know if this was like a a private side conversation, but um, he's talking to Mary and Joseph and, and then just looks at her. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Here's what Mary knows from just a couple months old having Jesus in her arms. She's going to live for a while, and she is going to live to watch, see, feel, and experience in her own soul the death and the murder of her own son. So verse five, Mary responds, but it's interesting because who's talking in John two? It's Jesus and it's Mary. And Jesus says, my hour hasn't come. Is this what you want? She doesn't even respond to him. She turns away from him and she looks to the servants and she just says this, do whatever he tells you. And she doesn't know how he's probably gonna do it, I'm guessing, All she knows is that it's time. The Lord is asking this mother to begin the releasing process. And Jesus understands it. And so Jesus responds, and here's what happens. Now, there were six stone water jars that were were there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. This is a lot of wine, by the way. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now, this is like a process. Like, if you ever have to go fill anything with water, we've got chickens, and when we have to just do one gallon at a time, we have to go into the faucet. I mean, this is a long process, so this takes, this takes a while. And you wonder if there's chatter going around in the background. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water, they knew. So nobody else really knows except for Jesus. We're going to learn the disciples, Mary, and these servants. The rest of the party, they have no idea what's going on. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. And then verse 11 tells us why Jesus did this miracle. 
Verse 11 says this. This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. Uh, the word manifest means to take what was hidden and now to make it visible. And what Jesus did really for the first time is his glory, his identity, he is fully God, creator of the universe, can do anything he wants, doer of miracles, resurrector of the dead, right? We're talking God. That has been hidden from most people. In fact, most people are trying to figure out who is Jesus. Even the disciples, they're like, we're compelled. We like you. We'll follow you. We think you might be the Messiah. We don't know. We're trying to figure this thing out. And they are looking at him, trying to figure this out. And in this moment, this is the first time he manifests or makes visible that which was hidden, his actually true identity. He is God. And the response to this from the disciples as verse 11 goes on and says, and his disciples believed in him. And this was Jesus's moment. It was his moment to go public. It was his moment to usher in his death. It was his moment to separate from his mother, submit to the will of his father, to begin his public ministry, and now to reveal to anybody who wants to see, this isn't just some rabbi. This isn't just some man. This isn't some just good teacher. But this is God in the flesh. And the disciples see this and they are struck and they believe, like really in their heart of hearts, believe that Jesus is God. And it was time for these men to move from spectators, observers, to actually committed believers in Jesus Christ who believe that this was not just a man and not even just the Messiah, but they're going to have to figure out that this is the God-man. And there's even more subtext here, and I want to go deeper with this. Because it wasn't just the miracle that struck them, or the fact that he could do this. I mean, that's really important, don't get me wrong. But it was the kind of miracle he did. Like, have you ever wondered, why wine? Like, why does he turn water to wine? And if you grew up in America and fundamentalism, and you had rules, there's all these weird things about this. And then you read the Bible, and the two don't agree, and you're like, I don't know what to do with all this. It's hard, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about. And then you read this, and you're like, wow, that's a, that's a lot of alcohol, man, right? That's a lot. This must be a long party, and we're just going to assume, for the benefit of the doubt, nobody got drunk, right? We assume it. It's interesting, because in the Old Testament, one of the indicators of the Messianic age, let me, let me just give you a category, when you think of, like, the new earth after the resurrection of the dead, one of the Old Testament markers or indicators is that good wine will flow in abundance and the people of God will eat and drink and celebrate and be merry and there will be no sin. And so when they hear this miracle, this is interesting because the emphasis on good wine is very important. And what they realize is that Jesus is not just starting his public ministry right now. He's not even just declaring his identity. He is actually beginning the process of ushering in the messianic kingdom. And so these disciples, we don't know. It could have been a day. It could have been five more days. I don't know how long it takes to drink six, what's, six jugs times 30 gallons, 360 gallons of wine. I don't know how long it takes for a big party to drink that much wine. I'm just going to go with like six more days, okay? And for days, they are sitting there and they are, they are hearing these prophecies in their brain and they're saying, what a strategic prophecy. This man, this God man, revealed his glory and is now ushering in the messianic kingdom. Now, they don't understand all that this means. 
At this time, they don't understand that he has to die first in order for this to be fully seen and realized. But here's what they understand. Jesus is making a declaration about his messianic status, and you already see that he's making a declaration about his deity because only God could do something like this. I want to go to our so what's now, and I want to, I want to, I want to share with you three so what's, and I want to try to answer one big question. So how did Jesus make disciples. Last week, uh, if you have not listened to Mike Boyle's message, it was really incredible. I want to encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. And one of the things he highlighted is that Jesus had a come and see approach. Follow me. And they followed him before they even believed. But this week, Jesus reveals himself personally to each and every disciple. If you are here and you have personally trusted in Jesus Christ, here's what we know. Jesus pursued you, revealed himself to you in a way that you could understand, and you responded by trusting in Christ. I just said it a minute ago, but let me say it again. This, this whole event, it pushed the disciples over the edge from curious spectators to committed believers. And, and there's this moment that every single person has with Jesus, where maybe you've been following, you've been watching from a distance, maybe you're a second generation Christian, which by the way, isn't even like a thing. There's only, there are no spiritual grandchildren, right? Maybe you're the person who grew up in a church, your parents were Christians, your grandparents were Christians. But there's gonna come a moment in every person's life where you have a personal experience with Jesus and you see him for the first time for who he is. For some, for some people, um, it comes through and you have what you would call an objective miracle. You're like, listen, I don't know why. I saw Jesus showed up. I cannot explain the things I saw. I cannot explain the events that are being orchestrated around me. But here's what I know. Jesus is God. He is my God. He is my savior. He died on the cross for my sins. He was raised from the dead. I can't even tell you how I know it. I know it. I know it to be true. And I'm making a personal decision to trust in Jesus. Here's what I found. Most people don't get the miracle. They, they don't get it. Here's the miracle they get. Here's the, basic, here's the basic way Jesus reveals himself. They hear the gospel or the good news of salvation through Christ. So you might be sitting here and you might say, I need to see a miracle. You might never get it. You might, I don't know. I can't script that out for you. Here's what I can tell you. That if you are ever, ever in a room where somebody shares the good news of Jesus Christ with you, he is personally revealing himself to you in that moment. In this moment right now, I am not Jesus, but I can tell you this. He is offering you salvation. He is personally offering you salvation through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. God loves you. He died for you. Jesus was raised from the dead. He is coming back in anybody, you, who trust in him personally. Today, right now, you can have salvation from your sins. You can have the confident hope of forgiveness. You can have eternity with God, yours, free for you, very expensive for him. And in this moment, you don't need a miracle because God has revealed himself in so many ways through creation, through the word, through people, etc. But right now, he's revealing himself to you through the gospel, which is the power of God. So I want to ask you this question. Have you ever personally, on your own, of your own volition, trusted Jesus as your personal God and Savior? I'm not asking, did grandma? I'm not asking, did your mother? I'm not asking, did your father? I am saying, have you personally 
trusted in Jesus as your God and Savior because salvation is never inherited from your mother or your father or your aunt or your uncle or your parents or your mentor. It is only ever because you personally have trusted in Jesus. Uh, what I find also interesting is that it seems Jesus's brothers, they were at the wedding and he didn't even reveal himself personally to them in this moment. Uh, five chapters later in John chapter seven, it says this, even Jesus's brothers at John chapter seven, right? They didn't even believe in him. Do you know what the miracle was that they needed to see? They needed to see the resurrected Jesus. And then we get two books by the brothers of Jesus in the Bible, James and Jude, half-brothers technically. Here's our second so what. If, if disciples are not made until they personally experience Jesus, I want to talk to every person in here who calls themselves a follower of Christ. It is our joy to connect people directly to Jesus. Apologetics, they're good, but they cannot save. Youth leaders, they're good. Youth leaders cannot save. Counselors are good, but counselors cannot save. Pastors are good, pastors cannot save. Churches are good, the church cannot save you. Parents are good, and every mom and dad in the room knows this. Parents have no ability to save their children's soul from hell and sin. The only person who can save you is Jesus Christ. So when I stand up here and I teach and I preach, I'm giving you the best I got, but at the end of the day, I want to connect you and to point you to Jesus. He is more important than any other person in the world because nobody, no institution, no human, nobody that you love has the power to save you from your sin. It is only ever Jesus. And so I want to open up God's word for you. I want to lead this church well along with our elders and our staff. And I want to honor God and the things he's given us to steward. But at the end of the day, all of this has to connect you first and foremost to Jesus because he is the source of salvation. And not just that, he is the source of all of your life. If you connect yourself to me, you're not going to be that happy. If you connect yourself to Christ, you will be much more delighted and your soul will be saved. And so we have to remember, it is our joy to not make ourselves the point. So let's come back to the beginning question. Mom and dad, what is the point? I want to prepare you by connecting and doing everything I can to put you in proximity to Jesus. This is partially why like what happened over the last two years in COVID breaks my heart to shreds because the greatest sadness and neglect has been that of children's connecting to the word of God, the people of God, the worship of God, God's word across. It has been gut-wrenching to watch. And this is our job. Our job is to create and facilitate environments where our kids have proximity to Christ and to his people and to his word as much as humanly possible. And we go before the Lord and we say, Jesus, would you personally reveal yourself to my children? People who leave Christianity most often leave and they say the same thing, Christians are hypocrites. And I want to say, duh, yeah, like, okay, if you're here, I say this thoughtfully and intentionally, um, you're in the room, by the way, with murderers, liars, thieves, cheats. You're in, the, you're in a room with adulterers, porn addicts, every other kind of addict you can probably imagine. Welcome to church. 
You know your own sin, and especially if you're newer to church, you're like, oh, these self-righteous people. The moment a Christian is self-righteous, oh my goodness, they don't get it. But I, I understand, by the way, there are some churches where you look at the hypocrisy and you're like, they don't even get the gospel. I get leaving a church, but to leave Christianity because people are dumb, here's what it just shows me. You have never personally trusted in Christ and experienced Jesus personally. Because when you experience Jesus, you might have to leave a church sometimes, but you understand the difference. The people are broken. Jesus is my savior and my perfect holy God. And, and, and so this is our joy. Like, I want to connect you to us. I want you to be connected to a pastor. I want you to be connected to a small group. I want you to be connected to people who love Christ. Don't ever mistake the person for the savior. The broken, fallen Christian for the pure, spotless lamb of God who is your savior. So what number three? This is gonna be a complete shift now. Jesus drew disciples through joy and laughter. Uh, whatever I say next, let me just tell you what I'm not saying. Um, I'm not saying you should start drinking. I don't care. It's not the point of this text. It's not the point of my sermon. In scripture, there are those that God says don't do, and there are some that God gives the freedom to do. You and the Lord figure that out. You'd be wise. You'd be a steward of your body, your history. That is your job. There is no judgment. The people of God are free. We are free to obey the Lord, period. For the rest. Eating, drinking, I don't care if it's Coke, coffee, tea, whatever. Laughing, all of it. They have two connotations in scripture. One, it's for those who eat and drink and laugh, they do so because they have no purpose. They're numbing their minds and their souls to the excruciating inevitability of death. Drunkenness is evil because it is this experience that allows you to forget about the aimlessness of life, the purposelessness of everything, and it's evil in Scripture. So sometimes, eat, drink, and be merry, it is, it is an exercise of pure evil. But there's a second connotation. It's like the same vocabulary is also used. And it's used for people who eat and drink and laugh, and they do so because their souls have been freed from sin and worry and hell, and they have no need to be drunk because they don't have to escape reality. They live in a world where their soul has been set free. And that, it, it, it actually fundamentally changes you. And you can be delightful and rest and not be burdened because you have a God and Savior who has freed your soul. You don't need to run and escape through substances. You have been released and you know that my God is sovereign over all the affairs of this world. My heart is light because my soul is free. And most religion is marked by stoicism. Have you noticed this? Ritual and coldness. That is what I find with religion almost everywhere I find it. Christianity, let's just pick on the first three fruit of the spirit. We are marked by love, joy, and peace. 
So let me tell you Jesus' reputation, and, and I, I think this is actually hilarious. Religious folk, Jesus drove them nuts because they were like, rules, 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 right? And Jesus is like, your rules are stupid and they're not in the Bible, so I don't really feel like obeying them, but whatever, you can be mad at me. Uh, Luke 5.33, they said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and they offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. They're laughing all the time. What are you doing? And Jesus is like, uh, you guys are, you're party poopers. I'm sorry. I'm a very happy man. I enjoy a people. I love creativity. I love to sit with people. They don't even have to believe what I believe. I like, I like sitting with Pharisees. I like sitting with tax collectors. Like you're a human. You're made in God's image. I'd like to, I'd like to hear your story. Like Jesus had the ability to delight in people religious folk couldn't stand. Matthew 11, 18. John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Like, I just think Jesus' reputation was hilarious. But then in Luke 22, here's verse 28. Jesus says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Like, life is hard. I get it. Like, there's been a lot going on. You have walked with me. We have gone through a ton here. This, is, this has been a hard three years together. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. And listen to his just description that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. I, I, I love the picture of heaven, the new earth. It's like a party. Jesus sets this big table and it's like, you're welcome, trust in me. You're welcome to come eat. You wanna be in my kingdom? I'm the door, come through me. Trust in Christ. And he basically throws you a party. And that's how he, I, listen, I like this Jesus. This is, this is fun. Jesus is actually like a wonderful, compelling human being that even the sad wanted to be around. The religious, not so much. If you like your rules, Jesus is probably not, not a great person for you to be around. So does this mean, by the way, that there is no place for grieving, weeping, or sadness? Not at all. Jesus wept, and by wept, we mean heaved and wailed over grief over the loss of a friend. He grieved. He was irritated. He was angry. And I think here's the distinction these didn't control him. They were real experiences and he felt them fully and he experienced all the range of emotions that a human should experience, but they were not his default. His default, when he lays his head on his pillow at night, is love and joy and peace. I have never, maybe you're different, but I've never had a time of solitude with the Lord where he says, Michael, be anxious, stop loving, and stay sad for the rest of your life on purpose. Because if you're sad, you're a victim, and victims have all the power. That's what you should do. I love sadness. I want you to be sad always. Now, there is no desire in my life, um, in any way, honestly, to make somebody feel guilty, particularly because there are some people, and you know who you are, who the Lord has asked you to bear the burden of ongoing clinical depression for a long time. And there, there are some people who have to bear unique and challenging burdens that affect emotionally how you feel and how you see. Joy is a fight, right? And so what we, what we find here is that like, there's, I don't have this like, you should be overwhelmingly feel guilty because you experience ongoing depression. In fact, this is more and more normal in this world. But I personally don't ever want to stop the fight for love and for joy and for peace. 
Even if I never fully find it, I just continually want to spend time with the Lord and say, God, I'm struggling to love. I'm struggling to find joy. I don't have peace. Anxiety is riddling my body. Like, I want to continually stay as close to Christ, and I want to fight for these as my default. And then I want to lean on the blood of Christ for my sometimes bad decisions or sometimes just inability or the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain me when I've tried to do everything I can to control my emotions and, and quite honestly, I haven't been able to fix them. But I don't want to stop the fight and just rest and say, this is, this is it, this is forever. I want to somehow in everything rejoice or at least pursue that end. And apparently... Apparently, when the people of God are filled with love and joy and peace, it is a foreshadow of the messianic kingdom to come one day. And I, I'll tell you guys, this world driving me nuts right now. I cannot wait for that day. I want to take a moment, I want to pray for you, and we're going to celebrate communion together. Father, I know every person in this room, man, that was a lot of loaded issues, whether there's alcoholism in people's past or depression or clinical depression and fights and battles. And Lord, this is one of those passages that just taps in so many sensitive um, issues in our time. But Lord, we commit each one of our souls to you. Thank you that there is no human experience we endure that you cannot relate to. Thank you for your grace that is so patient Thank you for Jesus, who is so compelling. Thank you for your spirit, who is so powerful. Lord, there, there are moments in our lives, and I think of Paul when he comes before you and says, um, would you take this thorn, and you say, my grace is sufficient. There are some people here who have a lifelong thorn, and your grace will have to be sufficient. But Lord, we want to continually, continually draw near to you. You are filled with love and joy and peace. And as much as we are able, this side of the kingdom of God and the new earth, would you help us become more loving like Christ and more joyful like Christ and more peaceful like Christ? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. We're going to celebrate communion um, now. And, and don't worry, there is no wine in the communion. We're not going to shift elements so that we can apply this sermon. Um, very honestly sensitive to the realities that so many of you in this room um, have personally navigated. But uh, the elements are not the most important thing. But the most important thing is what the elements point to. And the elements, like everything in this church, God willing, we want to point you to Jesus. And when Jesus celebrated the Passover, they had a glass of wine. He said, this third of four glasses of wine, when you drink this, I want you to remember my redemption. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And our hearts are designed in communion to point ourselves back to Jesus and to remember that he has paid the price for our sins by his shed blood. So if you have, um, maybe you're visiting and you've trusted in Christ, uh, I wanna invite you to participate with us. If you're here and it's your, like maybe first time or you've never personally trusted in Jesus, uh, just wanna invite you to not participate because when you partake of communion, you're making a personal declaration that you have believed in Jesus. But if you're ready to trust in Christ today, if you're ready to make him your savior for the first time, join us in communion and let it be your first declaration that you have trusted in Christ. We're gonna have a time of silence. Um, I'm gonna pray when that's done and we're gonna sing. And during the song, if you didn't get elements on the way in, they're at the column to my left and to my right in between the double, double doors. So let's have a time of, of silence together. <laughs>